going to be in Exodus chapter 19 here this morning. So if you join us over there. Here in chapter 19 of Exodus, we have Israel finally arriving here at Mount Sinai. They are going to remain at Mount Sinai for the remainder of the book of Exodus. So from 19 all the way through chapter 40, as well as the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is only about 30 days there in uh, Mount Sinai. And then you have the very first uh, nine chapters, 20 verses or so in the book of Numbers. That whole time period, they're here at Mount Sinai. So we arrive here in chapter 19, but now for the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and some of Numbers, that's where they remain during that whole time. So you have here, you have a, a, a toddler we need to pray for, number 67. <laughs> Lord bless. Please bless. Take care of that toddler. But with this slide that's going up here, the arrival here in chapter 19, we see Israel called into a special relationship with the one who has delivered them from bondage of Egypt. Israel accepts and the law and the conditions of this special covenant is then given in chapters 20 and 23. Chapters 24 through 31, Moses meets with God alone on the mountain of Sinai to receive the plans of the special meeting place, the tabernacle, which will be the place God will dwell in the midst of his people. Yet the people of Israel almost get that annulled before it even begins. And it's because of the whole golden calf incident. But God is long-suffering towards his people. And so that covenant relationship is restored because Moses intercedes. And the tabernacle is indeed built. All the furnishings, the priesthood is established. And by the end of Exodus, we have the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle of meeting. So go with me here to chapter 19, verse 1. And let's read the first verse here. And it says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt... On the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. So Israel arrives here in the third month. Well, what is the third month? Well, Scripture does not tell us the name of the third month. All months were in relation to the very first month that was given, the month of Aviv that God gave to Israel while they were still there in bondage. We read in Exodus 13, verse 3, it says, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten, and on this day you shall go out in the month of Abib, or Aviv is how that's pronounced. The Hebrew word is Aviv. It means green in the ear. Interesting. Ear meaning Ears of corn and wheat and things like that. It speaks of springtime. So this speaks of new beginnings. This month is the first month of which is their time of new beginnings because this is God delivering them from the bondage of Egypt. And so every month that is mentioned other than the month of Abib is to reflect back to that month. It's a reminder to them of that month, the sixth month from what? The month of Aviv, that month that God delivered us from Egypt. So everything revolves around that. In Scripture, we only find four months of the Jewish calendar that's actually mentioned. 
We see the first month is Aviv here in Exodus 13.4. Later on, it's going to go by its Babylonian name, Nisan. We see that in Nehemiah 2 and Esther 3.7. The second month is Ziv, 1 Kings 6.1. And then the seventh month is Etanim, 1 Kings 8.2. And the eighth month is Bul, and that's uh, 1 Kings 6.38. And so those are the only four Hebrew names that we actually have of the Jewish calendar. Later on, all those months are changed to Babylonian names. The Jew- Jerusalem Talmud tells us that the modern names that we have for the Jewish calendar today came from when they returned from their Babylonian captivity in 350 B.C. After Israel was delivered from their Babylonian captivity, Israel started using the names they were used to when they were in captivity in Babylon. And so those are the names that we have today. Now, those names is also a reflection to the Jewish people of their Babylonian captivity, how God brought them out of their bondage with Babylon. So all the months... Previous to that, reminding them of their first bondage and God leading them and delivering them and leading them out of captivity. And the second groupings of names that are Babylonian is also to remind them how God has delivered them out of the bondage again a second time out of exile. And so again, this is God who is constantly delivering and getting his people out of bondage. And the months remind us of that. So here we have this calendar right here. So this is Aviv right here, even though it says Nisan. We're going by the the way the calendar is today. And you can see that uh, Nisan, Ayar, and Savan are all in the spring, and Tumoz and Ab. Here's the summer months, the autumn months, the winter months, okay? And so this is kind of what the, the Jewish calendar is today. Now, this right here, uh, in the middle of the 15th of Aviv, or Nisan, is, is when Israel was led out of captivity. This is equal to March, April, right around here, and then April, May, and then May, June, right around here, June, July. So, when Israel was first being led out, that would be equivalent to March, April, is when, about March, is when they're being led out. Of, uh, of Egypt there. It's in the springtime because, again, Aviv means green, green in the air, and it speaks of springtime here. So when we read here in the very first verse, in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the same day, we read this. The word third here in the Hebrew is shalashi, and so it means third. The word month here in Hebrew is bechodesh, okay? It has a bait before it, which is a Hebrew uh, letter, whenever you have the Hebrew letter bait, it always means in the, okay? Kodesh here means new moon, okay? So in the new moon is what this means here. In the third new moon is what is being spoken of here. Bechodesh shleshi, and again, it means in the third new moon. The new moon begins the new month, So this would suggest that the first day of the third new moon, since their departure, which was the first month of Aviv in Exodus 13.4. So the third new moon, since their departure from the 15th of Aviv, would be the first day of the fourth month. Let's look at this again. Okay. So... Um, when, when, when it comes to the Jewish calendar, it's based on uh, a lunar calendar, okay? 
And so, again, towards the beginning of the moon cycle, it appears as a thin crescent. Then it's a signal of the Jewish new, Jewish new month. The moon grows until it's full, then it's in the middle of the month, and it begins to wane until you cannot see it. It remains invisible for approximately two more days. The thin crescent appears, and the cycle begins again. And the entire cycle takes about 29 and a half days. Since a month needs to be completed in the way of days, the month is sometimes 29 days long, and then sometimes it's 30 days long. And so you can see here on the Jewish calendar that Nisan is 30 days, and then Ayer is 29 days, then 30 days, then 29, 30, 29, 30. And so that's how the lunar calendar worked, okay? Now, if they left on the 15th here in the middle of Aviv or Nisan on the 15th day, that would tell us that there are 15 days remaining in this month, okay? If there's 15 days remaining in this month then you have the very first new moon after Aviv happening here for another 29 days. Then you have the second new moon that is happening right here, okay, for the next 30 days. And so the third new moon after Aviv would be the first day here of Tammuz, all right, which tells me that they leave in spring and they arrive before Mount Sinai right here before summer. Okay, so you're looking at the end of May, early June is when they arrive there at Mount Sinai. Now, if you take the 15 days that were still left in Aviv, and then you add the next 29 days of the first new moon uh, of the uh, of the of the first new moon of that month after Aviv, and then you take the next 30 days of the second new moon after Aviv. And then you have the first day of the third new moon. You have 15 plus 29 plus 30, which equals 74 or 75 if you count the first day of the third new moon after the month. Dave, why do you throw that up there? I throw that up there to show that from the moment they left Egypt, it took around 74, 75 days to get to Mount Sinai. Now... There are others that think that third new moon just means third new moon in the third month. Okay, if that's the case, then they arrived there in 59 days, all right? There are others that calculated that they arrived in 50 days. There's others that have calculated that they got there in 84 days. There's others that have calculated, no, it's a strict 90 days, all right? I can confidently say without a shadow of doubt, it's sometime between 50 and 100 days. There's other calculations, depending if the moon is made of cheese or whatever it might be, but it's, it's, everybody comes up with kind of a different date. I would also tell you this, that probably 75% of the people that I went to look up of what their calculation or whatever, 75% of them don't give a date whatsoever. They just, uh, in the third moon, they arrived and they just kind of moved on, okay? And uh, so... I put this together because I, I looked at it and said, you know what, as I look at this and the way that the Hebrew is written after, on that same day, it's meaning after that same day that they left, okay? And so uh, I personally believe it's probably more around 74, 75 days. It's not a salvation issue. So whatever you come up with, you come up with. It's all, it's all good. All that for verse 1. Dave, are we done with verse 1? No, we're not. Okay. It also says here that they left on that day. Okay. 
Um, when they left the day of Egypt, they left on that day. In Numbers 33, verse 3, it kind of confirms that. They departed from Ramesses in the first day. On the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, day, 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 day. And so, but yet we read in Deuteronomy 16:1, observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For the month of Aviv, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And so you have people that kind of go, okay, see, here's a contradiction. Was it during the day or the night that God brought them out? All right, I want you to go over here to Exodus chapter 12. Go to Exodus chapter 12. So we can get a, a, a little review on Passover and, and things like that. Here in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month, well, we know that month is Aviv, shall be the beginning of months. This is where your calendar begins here. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to the congregation of Israel on the 10th of this month. uh, Every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for the household. So this is the lamb. This is going to be the Passover lamb. Okay. And then it says here in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you should keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the house where they eat it. So you're going to take the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb has to be perfect. And you're going to kill it at twilight. You're going to take the blood and you're going to put it on the lentil and the two doorposts. They'll have the the basin of blood right there. They put on the lentil and the two doorposts. That's the sign of the cross. That speaks of the Passover lamb, like John the Baptist said when he pointed to Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Interesting of how the, the blood is applied in the sign of the cross, speaking of crucifixion, which wasn't even known to the world at the time when they were being told to do this in Exodus. It all points to Jesus, okay? It all points to Jesus. Now, notice what it says here in verse 6. It says, you are going to take the Passover lamb, has to be perfect, just like Jesus was. You're going to take the Passover and kill it at twilight. What time period is twilight? It's before sundown, right? Okay, as the sun is going down and before it completely goes down, that's twilight, usually between the hours of like 3 and and 6 p.m., okay? Um, So that's when they were going to kill the lamb. Now they also have to now apply the blood during that time. All right? Now notice what it says in verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night. What night is that? Is it the 14th? How do you do that? Or is it on the 15th? You eat the Passover meal on the 15th. Because what you might not understand is that when does a Jewish day begin? Don't don't jump ahead. I have a really cool slide here. But you're right. It's evening. You have the Jewish day and you have the Gentile day. So for us, a day begins at midnight. For the Jew, it began at 6 p.m. 
So that's when they eat the Passover meal is actually on the next day, the 15th, but it's 6 p.m. It's the evening of Passover, all right? But it just happens to be another day, all right? So because of that, we also know, according to verse 15 here, when it tells us, um, uh, or verse 8, it says, then they shall eat the flesh on that night, Okay, and verse 10 says, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. That'd be the morning on the 15th. Of what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. So God tells Moses, this is what the children of Israel need to do. Moses then calls the, the leadership there of Israel, all the elders. He tells them that, and then they tell the people. All right, so go over here to verse 28. And it says here, then the children of Israel went away and did so. Okay, so they chose the the lamb, all right? They watched it for five days to make sure it was perfect and everything. And then on the 14th, they did exactly that. They killed the lamb at twilight. They applied the blood, okay? And now they're, they're about to enjoy the Passover meal. And then it says in verse 29, it came to pass at midnight, that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. That happened again on the 15th. 15th began at 6 p.m. At midnight, this is when God struck the firstborn of all the households who did not apply the blood. Would have been the Egyptians and Pharaoh's household. And then it says here, In verse 31, then he, Pharaoh, called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, rise, go out from among the people, both you and the children, go, serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, be gone and bless me also. That is when bondage was broken and Israel had freedom now to leave. But before the bondage was broken, before they could have freedom to go serve and worship the living God, payment had to be made with the blood of the lamb. Once the payment was made by the blood of the lamb, then judgment can come upon Pharaoh, who also represents Satan. And he breaks his hold that Pharaoh had on the people of Israel. When did that happen? At night. At night. So, going here to verse 42. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord. Okay? So, the bondage of Pharaoh, Egypt, over God's people is now over. That happened at night. Pharaoh says, go. When did that happen? At night. Because the Jewish day begins at night, is there really any contradiction when you say, oh, they were called out during the day and this happened on this day, and then another place says at night is when they were led from bondage? There is no contradiction. I would submit to you when the word day is used, it's speaking of the whole day in the 24-hour period. It was on this day, the 15th, in which it happens. 
And in Deuteronomy, when it's talking about the night the bondage was broken, it's speaking of that specific incident that happened at night. If anything, it fits like a glove of exactly what it is that God has stated. And again, if this was a Gentile day, that wouldn't have worked out. But because it's a Jewish day, that begins at 6 p.m., which is night. Does that make sense? Good. Dave, are we done with verse 1? Not yet. Hold on. Um, Numbers 10, verse 11, says this. Now, it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony and the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. And so the total time that Israel was at Mount Sinai was a total of 10 months 20 days, possibly 11 months, 20 days. Again, how you, however you calculate it. Okay. Verse 2. We got there. Chapter 19, verse 2. For they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. This is emphatically stated here, simply stated here for this reason, it fulfills scripture. In Exodus 3, verse 10, when Moses has his burning bush experience, it's there at the base of the mountain there uh, of Sinai. And so God tells him in this, uh, this dialogue that he has with Moses of telling him what he's going to do, be the redeemer of Israel and things like that. He says in verse 10, come now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And so he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And now he's in that place of what God spoke to him, you know, months before, probably a year before. And now he's back there with all those people. Can you imagine a year before Moses hearing this? And then all of a sudden going, and now he's back there at this place with like 2.5 million people. And look what God says. This is going to be a sign to you, Moses. Do you think he needed that sign? With everything that he has seen God do, it's just another way of God saying, I've got this. And it's a reminder you, see where we are right now at Mount Sinai? Do you remember, Moses, how I told you? that you would bring the people back here, and we are here now. God is a God who fulfills his promises. He's a promise keeper. So here in verse 3, it says here, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, there's a commentary out there, famous commentary, and and, and I love this guy, and I I read all of his stuff and and, and things like that. And and then I've read in other commentaries as well that says, this commentator said this, so I know that they got it from this guy. And uh, and so I've read it in a few other commentaries as well. And, And they tell the story about how eagles... Um, how they teach their eaglets how to fly. 
And so how the, the, the mother eagle will, when they're about 10 months old or 100 days old, I should say, is when uh, they begin to kick the eagles out of the necks and then they kind of fall and then they swoop down and capture it on its back and then we'll dump them off and let them, you know, learn to fly that way. And if it looks like they're going to do a crash night, they swoop in there and they, and they you know, save them on, on their backs and stuff like that. Has anybody else heard that before? Raise your hand right now if you've heard this before. This is very important to me. Okay. Not many of you. I thought it would be more because I've heard this over and over again. So in this day and age, you can Google stuff. So I thought it would be cool to go, man, if I can get a little snippet of, of a video, you know, of showing that, I just thought that would be really cool. I could not. For this reason, it's not true. Right? So bummed. So bummed. I've heard this my whole life, you know. So you go on there, and there's none of that. I did find, I don't have it for you, but I did find uh, of condors in the Andes where... You know, where it shows this, this uh, um, young condor uh, trying to learn how to fly. And, and it's out of the nest. It's hopping on one big rock to another and kind of flies a little bit and then comes back to the knock, rock. And then all of a sudden the, the mother bird is there and goes, boom. <laughs> and it starts to fly a little bit, try to just come back. And then it won't let it kind of like come back. So it has to fly a little bit longer. And then it kind of learns how to fly. That's the closest I come. It is a condor. It's only one little deal, but it, it wasn't kicked out of the nest. It had already taken some flights on its own and, and you know, with the, with the wind and being so high up and stuff like that. But it just seemed to kind of stop on this rock, and mom goes, no, boom, you know. And that, that's the only thing I found, okay. So, um, but a great analogy about how, you know, God kicks us out of the nest and how God never lets us fall and he'll swoop in. And just a great analogy. The last time I taught through Exodus was like 12, 14 years ago, and I used that. It's in my notes and everything else. But like anything else that I taught a long time ago, I go, mm, I really should check this out. <laughs> Sounds like a good story. And uh, so I ain't teaching it this time because it's not true. It's not true. Um, but being... Saying here, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, speaks of protection, and it does, it's a Jewish idiom that speaks of protection and swiftness. Well, if you're able to leave Egypt, go through the wilderness, go, go cross the Red Sea, do, do the, the route that they did, and arrive in Mount Sinai with 2.5 million people or more, in 75 days, some people say less, some people say a little bit more, that's pretty swift. That's pretty swift. That's one of the things that people that want to attack the Exodus story saying there's no way you can get that many people and da da And it's kind of like, okay, first off, God does it. So you're okay with him splitting the Red Sea. You're okay with the ten plagues upon Egypt. But you're not okay with him getting 2.5 million people around that to this destination in 75 years. Yeah, that's impossible. Really? It's a God thing, for one. But what about all the 
infirmed? Or what about the older people that probably couldn't keep up? And it's a God thing. And I would submit to you that along this journey, there's a lot of people going, have you seen grandpa? Man, he has a little giddy up in his step and this and that. How is that possible? God. Remember later on in in Numbers when it talks about their wandering for 40 years? What does it say? God made sure their sandals did not wear out or their clothes. We, We have a tendency to, until we read something, God doesn't do this, until, okay, well, he did that with their clothes, but certainly he didn't give the, the older people a little bit more giddy up in their step. I would submit to you, not only did he probably do that, but every night that they, that, that, that they uh, stopped and rested and got up the next day to go for a journey, I would say that they're probably going, you know what, we've been doing this for like 10 days, and I don't know about you, but my feet don't hurt. I just feel like this is the first day. I don't know where this is coming. I do. It's God. The whole thing is God. And God is the one that says right here, guess what? I'm the one that brought you to myself. I did this. I gave you the strength. I caused the swiftness of having this happen. I am the one that has done this. And when you see it from that perspective, then all these things, yeah, but what about this? All of a sudden just kind of go away. Well, God did. How? I I don't know. It doesn't say, but he's the one that brought them there. And I have no doubt that he didn't lose a bunch of them along the way. Let's see. Okay, we only have 2,450,000. Okay, we lost about 50,000. That's still an A. That's still good. You know, percentage-wise, I got 98% of them here. That's all cool. No. God did it, and he brought them all there, and he's the one that brought them to himself. When we read here in verse 4, we kind of see these stages of God drawing them out of Egypt, lifting them up on eagle's wing, drawing them to himself. And we see here this process of maturity is what is taking place here. And it first begins with God. You cannot be who God has called you to be until you are called by God. Until you're called by God. He's the one that created you. He's the one that calls you. God calls, and God is one who then will enable you in your calling. Israel could do nothing about being in bondage until God intervened. We could do nothing about our sin until God intervened, and he did with his son Jesus. And after that, he now calls all of humanity to repent and receive what his son did on the cross. And so he has intervened. And as God intervened with the people here, by sending Moses and the ten plagues upon Egypt and made a way for Israel to follow him, God swiftly through his strength brought them to himself there at Mount Sinai. And he's, God reminds them that they are now out of bondage and have been bought, brought to a special place where they're going to have this special relationship with him and it's all because of him. And for the first time, they are now free to be who they ought to be. Those who are going to serve and worship God, they're being called to be God worshipers of the one true God, Yahweh. But with maturity comes responsibility. You have freedom given to you now. In that freedom, you're to mature and to respond and receive those new responsibilities. If your newfound freedom does not lead you to mature in the way of serving God, worshiping God, 
then what happens is you put yourself in a prison of your own making. Because God has done everything for you through the person of Jesus Christ. And he has sent the Holy Spirit into your life. Now, if you don't go on to maturity, that's your fault. That's our fault. A bondage that is from within is worse than a bondage that is from without. Because you're the one that put up those bars. And you've become your own taskmaster. It's interesting that God sees that when they were in bondage, it's a place of a furnace. And Deuteronomy 4.20 says, But the Lord has taken you, brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people, an inheritance as you are this day. And so from God's point of view, Israel was in a furnace. Israel didn't see it that way. Exodus 16.3, as things became difficult, as God was trying to mature them, in Exodus 16, verse 3, it says, And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for he brought us out here in the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Oh, I'd rather be back in bondage where I was comfortable than to be out here with my freedom, which is proving difficult. Interesting. Numbers 11, verse 4 and 5 says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. God delivered them from bondage because he had something better for them to enjoy. And yes, in order to enjoy it, they're going to have to go through something difficult. But that's the maturity process. He's trying to mature them so they are, be, they are going to be told they're going to become his special treasure. A kingdom of priests. For what reason? To be the light of the world. There's a tremendous amount of responsibility in freedom. With true freedom comes difficulty. To become that person you ought to be as worshipers of the one true God. See, the world teaches something else. The world says safety trumps freedom. We've seen that in the last few years with COVID. And when COVID first hit, we were all taken aback. Pastors included, never seen such a thing before. We've heard of the great plagues back, you know, in the medieval times, the the Black Plague and things like that. And so we had to do our research. We had to read about things. What, what What did they do and all that kind of stuff. And we were told to hunker down. We were told to go hide in our homes, put a mask on, and let's not make sure that you're within six feet of each other and do all this kind of stuff. Safety over your freedom To be just a normal human being. Now, don't get me wrong. We have people watching online right now because they're sick this morning. I want to say thank you so much for not coming to church. It's the way it should be. You know? If you are watching us online and you're not sick, you're lazy. And you need to be here in church. Why? Because that's what God says. 
do not forsake the assembly of the brethren. We're going to get to a point here that the very first time the word trumpet is used, we'll get to that next week, but the word trumpet means assembly, okay? It's to assemble. And so God calls his people to come together in corporate worship. And sometimes that's difficult, but it's going to lead to maturity. And so, again, understand what the world is always going to teach you. It's always going to teach you safety over freedom of what is it God has called you to do. And so, with this freedom comes incredible responsibility, and we see this all through life. A baby is safe, comfortable in its mother's womb. But at some point, the baby is born, enters into a new world, and it don't like it. Cries a lot. Shows how uncomfortable it is. Because it no longer has that safety of the womb. But it grows. And it matures. And next thing you know, it's beginning to walk. And that's not easy. They fall down. They, they, they bump their head. And they begin to cry again. But then they continue to walk. And then they begin to ride a bike. That's always fun. And now they learn what a skin knee is all about. And you would think that the whole world has collapsed when that has happened. But they eventually ride a bike. And hopefully they go on to maturity and will learn to drive a car. And just so you know, and the next step is really get a job. <laughs> it really is. I've had a job ever since I've been 14 and a half years old. I've never not had a job for maybe two and a half weeks at a time, just as I'm looking for something. What I've always worked, always, always, always. And my kids have always worked. It's one of the things that I, I'm very uh, glad that my wife and I put a, a work ethic in our kids. But this is where we begin to lose sight of things. You're supposed to get a job. You're supposed to earn money. You're supposed to get married. You're supposed to have kids. At every turn, we lose something as we gain something. And as we, as we go through that difficulty and lose something as we gain something, we are always at that place where we're going, this is better. And it's difficult and everything else, but it is better. And then when you have grandkids, it's the best. It's the best. And the same thing with our relationship with God. Every step, there is a difficulty, but through that difficulty, you're going to reach a level of maturity in your walk with the Lord. And you can see society today that they want to feminize the man. How they don't want to bring boys into manhood, girls into womanhood of what it is they call to be. And is it any wonder that we have all these People still in their parents' basement at the age of 40. Playing video games, not willing to get a job, things like that. Is because we, we don't, as a society, want to be able to say, you know what? Yes, this is going to be difficult. Welcome to life. I will help you walk you through it, but I'm certainly not going to carry you through it. With freedom comes responsibility, that responsibility is going to be difficult, 
But as you learn that responsibility, as you walk through that difficulty, guess what? It's called maturity. And it's the same with our walk with the Lord. It's interesting how Paul himself says, there's so much that God wants for you. But then he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 12, you're not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Your own affections. You've you've put yourself in bondage because of your own affections. These distractions of the world, they hold you back from what God really has for you of what he wants you to do for him. That's serving and worshiping him. Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God showed that he was a God who keeps his promise. They're right there at Mount Sinai, just like he said they would. And now he further furthers the covenant made to Abraham by giving more details to the special covenant relationship that he wants to have with his people. And it's got to be a mutual relationship. It says here, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my command, then. There is an if there. There is a condition there. In order to be my special treasure people, you need to obey my voice and keep my command, my covenant. It's a conditional covenant. If you do this, I will make you the treasure, special treasure above all people. Now, God is speaking to a people who are already saved. He's already saved them. This is important. Remember, their salvation is not conditional. Their intimacy with God is conditional. And guess what? Same today. Same today. The Israelites have been delivered from bondage and redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. And now redemption, we're able to see it it being purchased and also by power. Israel was purchased by the blood of the Passover lamb and they're delivered by the power of God from their enemies there at the Red Sea. This is a model for the new covenant in Jesus. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb purchased and with power. We're redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus delivered by the enemy of death through the power of his resurrection. And notice that this covenant that God brings to Israel is after they've been redeemed. It's crucial for us to understand this, how God's law and how this works in the Christian life as well. God delivers his people from bondage, then he gives them the law. Now imagine if it was the other way around. I'm giving you the law. And it, once you perform this perfectly, then I'll save you. Well, that would be horrible. No one would ever be saved. And that's absolutely true. And there would never have been an exodus. Before I lead you out, here's the law, perform this perfectly. They would never have been able to get out. God's people would still be in Egypt. And we would still be in the bondage to our sin as well. And so this speaks of us. But as it is, God first saves us in Christ, and then he calls us for Christ. See, before we can live in Christ, we need to be called to Christ. And once you're in Christ, now you can live for Christ. 
And this relationship that the Lord is calling us through his son is a loving relationship, just like he's doing with Israel here, with his covenant. And so in a love relationship, faithfulness is required from both parties. Faithfulness is required in both parties. So how can we experience a love relationship if we're not being faithful? How can we have an intimate relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ? How can we do that if we're not obeying Him, if we're rebelling against Him? How can we experience this love relationship if we're worshiping at the altar of another God of our own affections? How good is that relationship going to be? I would say it's not going to be very good. How good is that fellowship of God going to be if I am involved in pornography? How intimate am I going to be able to be with God if that is going on in my life, if I'm worshiping at the altar of lust? How good is that fellowship going to be with you if you're sleeping around with your boyfriend or girlfriend or if you're involved with drugs or alcohol, worshiping at the altar of your flesh, uh, worshiping at the altar of greed or materialism? That you're here this morning, and I'm grateful that you're here. But we're an afterthought, and God is an afterthought Monday through Saturday. Because you're pursuing what you want to do during that time. You're really a materialistic person. How is that relationship with God going to be? It's not going to be very good at all. It's the same thing as the relationship with my wife. If I entertain, if my attention and affections go to another woman, how good is that relationship going to be with my wife? I wouldn't have gotten to 33 years, I'll tell you that. And it's the same thing with the Lord. Israel, listen up. This is why if God is going to be your God and he is going to bless you, you need to be faithful. And in order to have close fellowship with God, intimacy with God, you need to obey God. It really is that simple. The covenant says, if, then. If you obey my then. You'll be special. You'll have this special relationship, this treasure above all out. We read in James 4, 8, Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded means that you're focused on so many other things. When we need to be singly focused on God. And see, draw near to God, and he'll draw near. Why doesn't he draw near to me, and I'll draw near to him? Well, he already did that by sending his son. And because you've already received him, he's talking to believers here. He is with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. You're you're talking with him. Your prayers and reading the word and you're walking with him and he's with you. But then something else comes up, you turn your back. You're going this way. He's still with you, but he's right behind you. The moment you confess your sin and say, Lord, forgive me, and you turn around, you repent means a turning around the way that you were going, boom, he's right there. He hasn't left, you've left. That's why he says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. He's he's already there. As you draw near to God, speaks of that repentance of coming back to him, and he's there with you. He's there with you. And he tells them, You're going to be my special treasure to me above all people. Verse 6 tells them, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, um, it's through their obedience they're going to become this special treasure. Now, God has already told Israel who he was. 
He is the God of their salvation. He is a God who keeps his promises. He is a God who was, who is, who will always be. He is God Almighty. Now it's time for God to show Israel who they are. And they're going to find out they're very, very unfaithful. But I'm a God who's willing to work with you. I don't know about you, but when I first came to the Lord, that's one of the things I noticed right away. I said I was going to do this, but I didn't do that. I'm going to get up every morning at 6 a.m. by 6.05. I'll meet with you every single morning. And I would fail in that. And I wouldn't go to church as often. And then just my, my walk with the Lord was just so sketchy. All that showed me is, man, this is difficult. Yeah, it is. And I'm finding out I'm pretty unfaithful. Yeah, you are. But God isn't. God isn't. See, you have to know who you are first before he can change you. The word special treasure here in the Hebrew is sugula. It means valued possession or property, royal possessions of property, the king's most prized possession. The Jews belong to a king, the king of creation. In 1 Chronicles 29, verse 3, it says, Moreover, because I have set my affections on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. Israel was God's royal property, his most prized possession. So why was Israel's God's most prized possession? Is it because they're special? Is it because they're the strongest of the people, the most beautiful people? Why? Well, we're told in Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor chose you, because you're more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the people. There's nothing from them to boast of. There's nothing great about them of why God chose them. As a matter of fact, I chose you because I felt sorry for you. You're the least of all the people. Of all the people that needed the most help, it's you. That's kind of why he chose them. This is one of the reasons why I, 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 I do, but, you know, um, of, of when a pastor gets a big head, he gets all puffed up, he sees all the people that are coming and the bigger building that he can build and all this kind of stuff, and he gets puffed up and he thinks he's, you, you know, uh, God's favorite instrument or whatever, And yet God tells us what the qualifying mark is to be used by him. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. You're not wise, okay? You're not mighty. You're not as noble as you think. And and, and that's the criteria I'm looking for. I'm looking for dumb guys. I'm looking for weak, weak vessels. And, 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 and you slurp your soup. Okay? I'm, I'm looking for those guys. And he says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So no flesh would glory in his presence. That's why. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, 
That is why it's written, he who glories, let him glory in God. Look, look, look for that kid in preschool who's in the corner eating paste. That's who God is going to call. You, you know, I, and I've used this analogy before, but if I put a, a, a bench up here and put a thousand pounds on there and say, I, the reason I'm doing this is because God told me to do this so you can see when I do this, and as I bench press a thousand pounds, you will have no doubt it was the Lord. Because you could look at me and you'd think, okay, three, four hundred pounds, sure. Um, but <laughs> thousand, yeah, that's got to be God. And so he does these amazing, amazing things through believers because he wants to show his power. And so you, you remain on that low rung and saying, it's God, it's God, it's God. It's not me. It's the Lord. And those who knew me growing up and everything else, I think, can probably attest to that. I can't believe what you're doing, you know. Um, and uh, it truly must be the Lord. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, and, and it is. It, it's God. And he can call me away at any time. He does not need me. But, but he wants me. It's his desire that no one should perish. See, a desire is higher than a need. I'd rather be wanted by God than needed by God. And then understand this. God doesn't need anyone, okay, to think that, well, God needs me. How dumb is that? But think about in your own relationships, Do you really want your spouse to need you? Or do you want them to want you? Want is much higher. You know, my wife just wants me around because I can open up jars and kill spiders. Okay. (laughs) But because most of the time I can't even open the jar either. Okay. (laughs) But she still wants me, you know. And that's a higher desire. And that's what God wants. He wants them. And that's a higher desire. And he wants you. That's a great desire of his. Let's pray. Yeah.